0: Life's aches and pains, we all experience them. So I'm excited that plus CBD relief is backed by popular demand. As you know, I'm big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CB Sciences. Plus CBD's Relief line of soft gels is the ideal way to help promote a healthy inflammatory response. Plus CBD Relief is doctor-formulated with recovery-supporting ingredients including CBD, CBDA, and Levagen PEA, which has been found in clinical trials to relieve severe headache faster than ibuprofen. Relief soft gels help address minor everyday soreness, support joint function, and encourage recovery following strenuous activity. All Plus CBD products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code HOFFMAN30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com Hoffman for Plus CBD's relief soft gels. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking to Tamper Ray Stevenson, uh, who uh, is an expert on nutrition and an advocate for nutrition, uh, especially for uh, less advantaged communities, uh, for people of color, uh, because there's a lot of inequity in this country. And especially it's played out in the field of nutrition. Uh, there are not enough uh, nutrition advocates in communities that really need them. And Tambra's doing something about it. Uh, she is uh, on the front lines uh, advocating for nutrition policies and literally uh, teaching and bringing awareness and knowledge uh, to people who need uh, more uh, more guidance in this field. Um so, Tamara, uh, you actually uh, uh, described a, a fascinating trip to when, we, when I spoke to you at uh, the American Nutrition Association Conference. Uh, you were selected as a 2014 finalist for Nat Geo Traveler Magazine's Traveler of the Year because uh, you, you did kind of a deep dive into your ancestry. And I think that actually has some very, very important implications for nutrition because I can recall a project that was undertaken in the Southwest where there's a lot of uh, Native Americans uh, who have a high prevalence of diabetes. It's genetic. They're highly predisposed, having uh, survived in really arid desert conditions for centuries and millennia. And then when introduced to a Western diet, you know, almost you know 80, 90 percent of them become diabetic and obese. And what they were introduced to was a traditional diet, elements of the traditional diet because their traditional diet kept them healthy and lean. It's just you know when modern foods were introduced, processed foods uh, and sugary foods, high caloric, calorie dense foods, uh, that's when they got in trouble. So did you gain any insights from your trip to Africa about what a traditional diet could mean for some of these communities?
1: Most definitely. It was um, definitely a, a journey of self-discovery. I did my DNA test with African ancestry um, that revealed my um, heritage being Fulani, which is in present-day um, northern Nigeria, southern Nigeria, which would have been called Hausalan, pre-colonial um, invasion. And from just exploring my um, one own heritage and going back to the Ruga, which is Hausa for village, um, which was a journey upon itself. Um, I was greeted with four Danono, which is Hausa and milk called milk and millet. Um, they are pastoralists, um, a sect of the Fulani people sometimes called Pilar, depending on if you're in the Francophone region. Um, and so in the, community um the fermented milk is not the same as, you know, the pasteurized milk that we have here. Millet is grown in very semi-arid uh, conditions. It's not really a grain. It's more of a cereal grass, um, cousins to like a, you know, a phonio uh, that you'll find like in present-day Senegal. And so as it's, you- It's less calorie um, dense, in have- other words.
0: It's not like bread for, yeah. you know, to be, you know, springy, spongy, you know, tasty, sugary, exactly. that whole thing, right?
1: not not i mean it's it's so i mean
0: yeah it's high fiber (laughs) let's put it that way yeah
1: exactly exactly high in fiber and so it it brings me to one of the studies that came out of university of pittsburgh where um it was under the the research of uh, dr stephen o'keefe where he put african-americans and rural south africans um swapped diets for two weeks and one group, the African-Americans, had um, a high-fiber, low-fat um, African heritage diet, and those who were rural South African had a more high-fiber or high-fat, low-fiber American Afro- um, diet. And so in that two-week span of time, he was able to, one, see uh, a change in uh, colorectal cancer risk. Um, decrease among the African Americans as well as uh, the inflammation decrease and, and the biomarkers um, that you'll find when it comes to like cancer polyp um, decrease and see an increase um, in those who were South African. And I think that just tells you the power of what we talk about epigenetics, just switching off, um, you know, are genes like light switches, like in terms of how the environment and gene re- re- relationship is so critical? Um, and I share this in the TEDx talk that I gave um, this past year at George Washington University around my whole journey and how it contributed to creating Wanda because when i before wanda i created native soul kitchen with the focus of teaching pan african nutrition education and empowering communities to one learn their own african heritage identity um and the names of these foods and how to prepare them um and understanding and encouraging traveling back um to their ancestral land and really having a deeper appreciation of that because many of these foods you know are the very foods that would not contribute to metabolic syndrome issues that you'll find. Um and so part of my work in serving on the advisory board for Oatways, uh they have the African African Heritage and Health program and created the African Heritage Diet Pyramid. Um and in that it provides uh, community-based nutrition education where people can learn uh basic entryway into understanding that your food is your medicine. And and the goal is that there should be more U.S. government dollars invested in African heritage diet foods um, and nutrition interventions at the same rate that we do for Mediterranean diet. Um, and even when we think about the Mediterranean diet, the, the, the southern portion of the Mediterranean sea that touches North Africa mm-hmm. is now from conversations being Included in that com, in, in that diet because it recognizes that as my recent trip to Morocco, I mean, the food was phenomenal Excellent. and understanding like that too is part of the Mediterranean diet. Um, and it was such um, a great opportunity. You know, every time I travel, I've been to. Ethiopia, South Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, Morocco, um, COVID took me out, couldn't get to uh, Egypt, but that's on my agenda, and Kenya and Tanzania, um, which is where the uh, African Food Systems Forum will be held this September. And, you know, so beautiful to see the the diversity of these foods and how they can be incorporated into the diet, and you now see that West African foods is trending now here in the U.S. Um, you can thank a lot of that from, you know, digital influencers um, on Instagram and TikTok, um, who's really blown up the cuisine, and we only hope that that ultimately helps communities and local food economies and ultimately our health when we diversify our diet
0: it's very interesting if you look at uh the uh uh, genomics of the uh what is termed the african american population it's actually very diverse uh you know you traced your ancestry to nigeria but uh there are tribes in other parts of africa who may have uh, different genetics different requirements there's uh, the example of the maasai warriors who are on a predominantly uh, uh they're pastoralists so they they do eat a lot of meat they uh drink uh animal blood actually is a source of nutrition traditionally uh and use a lot of uh milk products uh african americans have certain african americans have a lot of trouble with uh, lactose intolerance because unlike scandinavians that was not part of their their daily fare so uh is there is there a, a, a general rule or is it just a, a a lot of different traditions that can be inco- incorporated
1: yeah, even on that part on, um, the lactose issue, um, and that's why I, ha- it was really amazing to learn about the Fulani diet and their life. And we also have to factor the amount of physical activity involved yeah, um, with the consumption of cheese products as well. We're very sedentary. And even I was still hit by the impact of COVID uh, with all my knowledge. Um, and so I would definitely say that, you know, it's been amazing, one, that uh, when we think about What it means to be lactose intolerant for many communities is also the processing of how we handle milk in this country compared to other places has to be. Factored into the equation, but beyond that, you know, fermented milk it tends to be the way in which you know milk is consumed in the communities. And when we think about the healthy probiotics and prebiotics that come from um, from millet, from fonio, from um, the kind of milk that is prepared um, in, on the continent, that makes a huge difference. And so I always talk about it's not just the product; it's the preparation, the processing. That all factors on top of the packaging. All all factors in playing out in the nutritional value of foods in the end before it hits um, our palates. And so, um, I think for every everyone's story, it's it's not monolithic. I think that was one of the key things that I learned from my own journey and travel, um, and to really dive into your own personal story and investigate, talk to your family members, do the research, take the DNA test, and be willing to travel and discover. Um, your own path um, because everyone's story is not the same.
0: Uh, Yeah. I recently did that and went to uh, Eastern Europe and discovered uh, something that my grandfather used to like to eat, uh, herring, herring for breakfast, uh, which is probably Mm -hmm. a better alternative than, uh, you know, a highly sugared (laughs) breakfast cereal. It's rich in omega three fatty acids. (laughs) Uh, And I I take advantage of learning a little bit about uh, my heritage to uh, understand better my uh, nutritional requirements. Um, One of the uh, sources of inequity in nutrition is that a lot of the studies uh, are done on populations, frankly, which are predominantly white or Caucasian. Uh, And I've seen some studies Mm -hmm. which say, uh, you know, when every study has a section that says, here are the limitations of the study. You know, oh, it's based on recall or, you know, the only study was only done for five years. Uh, And many of the studies have a caveat saying uh, this study was done primarily on uh, white uh, American males. And so we can't necessarily generalize uh, the conclusions to uh, other populations. Uh, is that something that right. uh, you're focusing on?
1: Um, I mean, that's one of the key reasons why my interest in serving on the Nary advisory board, um, which for many may not know, it's, it's the advisory board that oversees the research agencies um, within USDA that advises the, um, USDA um, Secretary Vilsack, um, and so that's from the Ag Research uh, Services um, Agency to NIFA. Um, the list goes on, but they have a relationship with NIH um, that is known for the medical research agency under HHS in and, and developing the five-year research agenda, um, and on that agenda, everything from Inuit diets to Latin diets um, and others have been explored, and when we think about the origin of the medical Mediterranean study that really caught way in the US. To your point, it was also focused on um, Greek males at the time when it, when that research, you know, caught the attention of those here um, in the States. And so I think there is something to be said about, you know, what happens when we have to oversample a population in order to, get, to beef up the numbers, that if we actually, you know, one, address the historical tr- legacy around trust in, in research and acknowledge, you know, the role that it, it means to have people principal investigators who represent the community just as we had the conversation around health providers and also allocating the funds to historically black colleges and universities to do the research um i recall even when i was looking at the numbers of, of dollar allocation to um hbcus compared to pwis prior, uh, predominantly white institutions it's like a 1 to 10 ratio it the the numbers are quite low when it comes to, especially in cooperative extension um, and programs like FNEP um, that provide, that stands for the Expanded Food and Nutrition Education Program that are these community nutrition educational programs that have a research component to them on top of the need to research the actual grains and fruits and vegetables that we need as well. And so that equity lens also is narrowly beamed on um, the need to look at nutritional research, just as much as diversifying the field in terms of practitioners. It's across the whole supply chain that we really need to have an equity lens, an intersectional lens uh, to ensure that we are changing the dial around obesity and around health disparities in the country. Because at the end of the day, for for those who, who may think otherwise, when we have a more diverse, um, healthy population, it improves productivity, it improves our economy, it improves um, the opportunity that U.S., you know, remains a superpower. And so no one benefits by having, you know, those who are the sickest among us and not taking care of us. And even for those who follow a faith, it's so critically important that we really help all in our society if if given the opportunity to.
0: One of the nutritional themes that uh, fascinates me is the high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency among darker-skinned individuals, and you know, kind of makes sense because you know, perhaps if you have darker skin, maybe you're, uh, you, you know, these days you're you're less likely to uh, bake in the sun because your skin is you know dark enough anyway, so you're not going to just go outside to, to darken your skin uh, as a cosmetic thing. Uh, But also, uh, it seems to take longer if you have darker skin for you to manufacture vitamin D. Is this something uh, that uh, we're increasing nutritional awareness about?
1: Well, um, obviously, you know, it touches on the conversation about melanation and understanding, um, you know, I remember seeing vitamin D deficiencies, you know, even in my own friends, you know, we would just call bowlegged and just think it was just a genetic
0: yeah thing like it's rickets. oh
1: it's yeah. yeah exactly but it's rickets you know and i didn't realize that until sitting in a nutrition class and just like oh my god
0: yeah. i
1: mean how how we try to use euth- euthanize some of this stuff yeah i mean it's fine um, when your ancestors
0: so, were you know in a warm climate you know and walking around you know uh you know in the sun you know in equatorial regions without a lot of clothes on but yeah uh you know if you live in minneapolis and you know you have dark skin uh you you get in trouble yeah
1: Yeah, and I've been to Minneapolis and have family there as well And, you know, that is one place I do not want to stay outside too long Unless it's uh, peak spring and summer Um, And so I think it really is, you know important to have that conversation one to wear proper sunscreen um from just seeing the impact of skin cancer because you're not just because you have dark skin you're not exempt
0: from skin cancer that's the other fallacy right not at all yeah
1: not at all exactly and so um being able and then also. The research that I'm doing for my um, PhD, you know, you know, exposes the outdoor discrimination that goes back to Jim Crow policies where, you know, if you were African-American, you yep. were relegated to Negro areas of the National Park or Service. You couldn't go or to a pool. You, even you had a car to get there.
0: Yeah, you couldn't go you to couldn't a pool
1: either. You couldn't go to a pool. So, yeah. yeah. So this is where we have this reinforcement of structural racism playing a role of what keeps people indoors when they don't feel safe. Um, which there's more research coming out speaking to like Harm Buckle, who uh, is a scholar who talked about that how racial discrimination has been linked with physical activity. Meaning, the more physically active you are, you know, eighty nine percent of African Americans are uh, are reporting experiencing racial discrimination compared to 40% white. And so I think there is something to be said about, you know, even though I might need some vitamin D in my life, is it worth the risk? And these are real safety concerns that are plaguing many African americans whether they live in urban environments or white environments. These are real dynamics that have to be addressed and have conversations and policies of how do you make people feel safe in their own communities mm-hmm. to make sure they don't have a vitamin D issue.
0: And, and then, you know, just while I have you, uh, another uh, health disparity that results in uh, a lot of problems, you know, drowning, uh, a cause of one of the major causes of death among children, um, high uh, preponderance of that in minority populations. And, and generally, you know, if you go to a swim meet, uh, it's the rare individual that you see uh, who is uh, African-American or Hispanic, who is a champion swimmer, uh, and that's because of access, right? Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I personally, I would be the first to say I'm not the best swimmer. I've been in the okay. pool. i tried. My mom tried to give me lessons. I can't say my kids, I broke that cycle. They have been taught to swim and they will be able to, you know, tr- turn the tide, uh, you know, no pun intended on that one. But it really is important to learn how to swim um, and to be able to just, ensure that we have our children who um, can understand one CPR if something ever did happen, God forbid, but also acknowledge that it's, it's, it's critical just one um, being in communion with nature, whether it's outdoors and and the physical, uh, you know, trees and forests, or if it's um, on the seas and the oceans, and, and to be safe in doing that because we know the number of, whether you're experienced swimmer or not, we've heard the stories of those who've been um, experienced swimmers and still have been swept up by tides and unfortunately don't make it after the Fourth of July um, event because of, you know, nature is more powerful than man at the end of the
0: day. Hmm. Well, it's it's very uh, interesting to get your perspective on uh, on this. I mean, swim literacy, uh, part of overall uh, health literacy and and well being, uh, and you're at the forefront of that. Where where can people uh, learn more about uh, your initiative? Well, first of all, there's uh, I am Wanda right? W A N D. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's- Yep, they can sign up to our newsletter and also find us on social, all social media from Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn where we're quite active and we are happy, um, to keep the engagement going. We post content that is, uh, good food uh, for the mind and the body, um, and, and sharing um, information that hopefully you can apply to your life and be engaged in what's going on with the food system um, from local communities to national and global. Um, so, so happy to be a part of today's conversation with you.
0: Oh, indeed. Yeah, and I really applaud your efforts because uh, you're really making uh, a difference because, uh, unfortunately, nutrition has become a little bit of a – the field has become a little bit of a, a luxury thing, you know, where people who have uh, – uh, disposable dollars, uh, you know, can see integrative practitioners who often uh, not covered by insurance uh, and uh, spend their discretionary dollars to the tune of thousands on vitamins and supplements when the biggest difference could be made uh, with small incremental changes for the people who have uh, the least uh, of the benefits of a healthy diet and lifestyle. So, yeah, good stuff. Very, very yeah. important.
1: Totally.
0: We're make a big I, and impact. I would
1: just say to that point, for, for those companies that are, you know, these boutique operations that are making an impact in communities that can afford, you know, one way um, to think about um, how to make an impact is partnering with organizations like WANDA to provide the DEI solution where you can put your money and ensure that is making an impact in communities that are building new pipelines and pathways uh, to diversify the field of nutrition. We know um, that less than 10% of the field of uh, nutrition, at least by the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics uh, states is people of color. Of that number, 2.5% are of African descent. And so when you break that number down, it's roughly about 4,000 registered dietitians, nutritionists in this country and students that in uh, a population uh, of, what, more than 100 uh, million in the U.S., 130. So it's a drop in the bucket when we think about the war, the food fight that we are engaged in and don't have the investments, the equipment, or the infrastructure or the bodies on the ground to win it. And so I think having even just um, a t- almost like 10% tithing. How can you invest in these NGOs that are um, fighting food equity, nutrition security work? Um, that is one way to, to think about how to make a difference. And organizations like Whole30 have been a great example of that that have partnered with WANDA to help create our Food Share Freedom Fund. We try to raise money to ensure that we create an endowed scholarship at universities to help diversify their um build of nutrition by providing scholarships to students and um, being able to see partnerships over a long haul is so critical to see impact sustained over time. Um, and so every Juneteenth, we host our Sisterhood Supper um, event that honors local food heroes here in Washington, D.C., while also raising funds to help with our scholarship program um, and bring on students um, that are at Howard and other universities providing them with an opportunity uh, to ensure that they get experience in the field so they can strengthen their applications when they're applying for the CNS or RDN um, or pursuing medical school. So this is what it looks like when you're working on the front line.
0: Well, absolutely. You're This has been a wonderful conversation and uh, I really commend your work. And uh, you are a stalwart warrior on the front lines of nutrition where where it really counts. So thanks very much for joining us. Tambra Ray Stevenson. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Thanks. Thanks very much. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant, and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free full script account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com, drhoffmanstore.com.